And then finally, the most accurate method, and that method that has developed the most over the, the history of spaceflight, are star trackers. You have some catalog of stars, and you have a camera that can identify, oh, I see these five stars. I can I match them to the catalog, figure out you know, how it's oriented. And if they're oriented in a particular way, I know approximately you know, where I'm pointing. Welcome to another episode of the Mapscaping Podcast. My name is Daniel and this is a podcast for the geospatial community. Today I'm talking with Jack Reed. Jack is a PhD student at the MIT Media Lab and today on the podcast we're talking about how to keep your satellite pointing at Earth. It turns out this is a non-trivial problem but I'll, I'll let Jack go into that in more detail in just a second. So I'll be back at the end of this episode to point you towards some more resources that you might find interesting. But first, here's a quick word from our sponsor. This podcast is sponsored in part by Lightbox. So you can find Lightbox at L-I-G-H-T-B-O-X-R-E.com. And, and what do they do? Well, Lightbox is a data platform. And it's an authoritative source of North American real estate and location intelligence data. So you're probably wondering what kind of data are they an authoritative source of? So they have parcels, building footprints, administrative boundaries, census data, schools, demographics for neighborhoods, points of interest, school ratings, traffic volume for neighborhoods. As far as the property side of things goes, they have ownership information, loan and sales transactions, contacts and, and mailing addresses, historical aerial photography. So you can use the Lightbox platform to do your analysis in the platform itself, or there's a set of APIs that you can use to get a hold of the data that way and perhaps build your own analysis around it, or you can bulk download these, these data sets as files. If you're looking for a real estate information and technology platform, check out Lightbox. I'll put a link in the show notes to make it a little bit easier for you to find. Thanks, Lightbox. Really appreciate your support. Hi, Jack. Welcome to the podcast. It's a real pleasure to, to talk with you again, and I'm really looking forward to this conversation. So you answered a tweet. I tweeted out a couple of weeks ago something along the lines of, like, I understand how we orientate sensors. So, so let's think about a camera, the point of view of a camera that we need these six degrees of freedom. And it got me thinking about satellites. How do we orientate satellites? And so this was my question on Twitter, and you answered it brilliantly. And you had all these points. I reached out to you. We had a conversation. And you taught me so much about satellites, how they orientate themselves in space, how they navigate in space, and a million other things. So welcome to the podcast. I'm looking forward to diving into all of this stuff with you, and I hope that the listeners find it just as interesting as I did. Before we jump in there, would you mind just introducing yourself, please, to the listeners? Yeah, of course. You know, first off, you know, howdy. So it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, so right now I'm a PhD student at the Media Lab by background. I came out of mechanical engineering, did shock and vibration testing at Sandia National Labs before moving fully into aerospace engineering at MIT, did a master's in aeronautics and astronautics uh, simultaneously to a master's in technology and policy, sort of getting that policy side of things as well as the engineering. And then for my PhD, I moved into the MIT Media Lab, which is a, it's a very interdisciplinary space. And I'm very much still bringing that engineering, aerospace engineering background to bear some of my lab mates in my research group, which is called Space Enabled, you know, they come from other domains of, you know, ethics or art, other aerospace engineers, data scientists, that kind of thing. Uh, we all work together on sort of making space sustainable and using space to help promote sustainability on Earth. That would explain how you know so much about satellites. I've been fortunate enough to, uh, was exposed to, to satellites actually my, my freshman year in undergraduate with, there's an undergraduate group at Texas A&M University called the Aggie Sat Lab that sort of designs and builds satellites. And that was my initial exposure to it. So it's been, it's been quite some time now. 
You're talking about your master's in aerospace engineering, and this might be a really naive question, but aerospace engineering, are we immediately talking about satellites or could this be a range of different things that, that you're studying? The department has like a range of different things. Uh, some people do more on the robotic side. Uh, some people do aviation, you know, aircraft. Uh, other people do, you know, launches, launch vehicles, propulsion, and other people do satellites. So it's a sort of a mix. Uh, I would say like the cleanest distinction is there's sort of an, an air side and a space side. And I was very much on the, the space side of things. What attracted you to the, the space side of things? Like I understand a lot of people, you know, grew up watching Star Wars or, or whatever, or just have a look up, you know, and look at the stars and are fascinated by that. Is, is that what the initial attraction was to you when you thought about aerospace engineering and, and, and building satellites? I'm somewhat unconventional in that space was never sort of like a, a priority for me as a kid. I was interested in a lot of topics. Space was amongst them. I thought the space shuttles were awesome. I thought the International Space Station was wicked. But it wasn't, you know, the, the first and foremost thing in, in my brain. I think I actually came about it more through the defense side of things. Uh, I, have a, I have a lot of family in the, the United States Air Force. So even though I wasn't going that route, it was sort of easy to follow that path. And so, you know, I started, I did some work for Cyndia National Labs. I did some work for the Rand Corporation. And that sort of led me more to space. And then the more I started learning about, you know, the details of that through my education, the more I fell in love with, yeah, both space hardware, software, its applications. And increasingly, I thought that like, oh, you know, where the real, real gain is, is not on the defense side, which I've moved away from, but is on using, you know, space-based assets and imagery for sustainable development. Uh, and I've really fallen in love with that aspect of it. Over the course of my career, you know, I've sort of touched on different parts of it, you know, sort of the design and building of, of satellites, you know, some of the policy and acquisition side on like the defense side of things and now to using the data that they produce. When I think about space, I'm pretty sure I think about it differently. So I think about, sure, it's, it's hard to make a satellite. And yeah, we've got to fling a big lump of metal into the sky. But it seems to me like once it's there, it's there. The, the orbit is stable. It's looking down at Earth and it'll just go round and round and round and you know, send data back to Earth. I, I realize this is a massive oversimplification, but can you tell me... Where I'm wrong, where I'm oversimplifying things. Yeah, well, I think that satellites, something that people should keep in mind is satellites, they're, they're very active things. They're not just passively taking imagery or broadcasting messages. They do have various means of moving themselves around, both, you know, sort of in three dimensions, as well as orienting themselves, which is called attitude adjustment. And this is a major contributor to, to the lifespan of satellites. If those things break, they drift out of orbit or they start looking in the, the wrong place. Okay, so, so let, let's start with this idea, looking in the wrong place. Isn't that something that's decided when the satellite is shot into space, when it achieves the right orbit? Isn't that just a one-time adjustment? Okay, I'm looking down at Earth now, and now I just continue in my orbit? Yeah, so that's, that's a very good question. And the fact of the matter is, though, that in space, it is a vacuum. By and large, you know, things are not pushing you around. Things are not pushing you in any particular direction. And that includes which way you're pointing. So I know the intuition is to assume that the satellite is going to keep pointing down. But if you actually think about it, the satellite's going to just keep pointing in the same direction. So if it's looking at Earth at one particular moment, as it orbits around the Earth 180 degrees, it's now going to be looking directly away from Earth. And then as it comes back around, it'll be looking at Earth again. So in order to keep looking at Earth constantly, you know, which most Earth observation satellites want to be doing, you do in fact have to continuously rotate it. This is basically actually what the moon does, right? Like we know that the moon has days and nights, and it also has a side that is always facing the Earth. And that's because, you know, its day is the same length as the time that it takes to go around the Earth. But it is, in fact, rotating about its own axis during that time. So we have to do the same thing with satellites if we want to have them continually pointing at, at Earth. 
it seems to me the first job there is to know where Earth is, like the right direction to point. Exactly. So you need to know where Earth is and you need to know which way you're pointing. So this comes into, there's a subsystem on, on basically any satellite called ADCS, which is, stands for Attitude, Determination, and Control System. Attitude being the way that you're pointing. And then determination, of course, is that, that part that you were just asking about. It's figuring, you know, where, the, where is a satellite pointing? You know, where is the Earth? That kind of thing. And there's a variety of sensors that can, can help out with that. Basically, something that all satellites have is an IMU, an inertial measurement unit, which are basically a bunch of accelerometers and gyroscopes to tell how is that satellite accelerating. You know, there's one of these in your phone, and it, it's what tells your phone, you know, when to, you know, flip the screen to, to profile or landscape kind of thing. So that can help keep track over time. But the problem with those is you need to know where you started from uh, since they only measure basically sort of changes. And the other thing is that since they work by integration, you know, they're measuring acceleration. You have to integrate that to your angular velocity. And then you integrate that again to get to your angular position. And errors creep in at each of those steps and they build up over time. So this is why, you know, aircraft, they don't rely on just IMUs, for instance. But these are what you use from, from moment to moment to tell which way you're pointing. So then you have to have various sensors on top of that to help, you know, periodically reset your error down to zero to recalibrate the IMU. And there's a lot of ways of doing that. You can, you know, listen for, you know, radio communications from like known ground stations on Earth. You can have what are called horizon trackers, which basically look at the, their infrared cameras that look for the cutoff of the Earth's horizon and space. Because as you might imagine, the Earth is warmer than spaces. So by looking at that horizon, you know, you can figure out at least, you know, one one thing to point at. It doesn't tell you where on your horizon you're looking at a time, but that's a sensor that you can use. Another one is a sun tracker. Very similar. You just look for the hottest thing in the sky. The nice thing is, you know, the sun, it's not like the Earth horizon where, you know, there might be a full circle of horizon that you can see. The sun tends to be a particular spot in the sky that you can look at. And then finally, the most accurate method and that method that is developed the most over the, the history of spaceflight are star trackers. You have some catalog of stars and you have a camera that can identify, oh, I see these five stars. I can I match them to the catalog, figure out, you know, how it's oriented. And if they're oriented in a particular way, I know approximately, you know, where I'm pointing. So when you talk about the star tracker, the, the catalog of stars, the, the, the map of stars, I guess we could call it. Obviously, we have to identify someone there and, and then we can figure out, like you were saying, where we're pointing. It sounds like perhaps doing some triangulation of some description. Is this like the modern day or the space version of the sextant that, that we're actually talking about? Yes, it, it is exactly that. And in fact, it develops, you know, during the, the, the Mercury through Apollo missions, uh, they were in fact using sextants uh, looking out the window. It was not their only means of attitude determination, but it was, it was definitely a means they, that they used and, and practiced with of manually looking out the window, sighting particular stars, writing down their angles, and then doing the trig to figure out which way they were pointing. And then just over time, we've gotten better at, at automating that. You know, first designing star trackers to keep a lock on just a handful of very particular stars. The downside with that is if you get your camera off from those very particular stars, you might have a hard time getting it back to them. Up until nowadays, where we have uh, much larger catalogs that can be much more easily used to figure out, you know, wherever you're pointing, no matter where your satellite is. Is that, would that catalog, would that be specific to the orbit that the um, satellite was on? And so I'm thinking... The, the orbit must be known before we shoot the satellite into space. Would I load it up with a specific catalog or just have all of the stars in there? That's a good question. I'm not entirely sure how specific they get. It definitely, you know, does matter to a certain extent where you are. For instance, you know, we don't necessarily use star trackers in exactly the same way 
for, you know, sending missions to Mars or Jupiter or that kind of thing. There are people working on, you know, ways of improving those kind of trackers in the, in the future for those applications, particularly using pulsars, which are much more identifiable. But yeah, you do have to have some knowledge of where you are, you know, in the universe to be able to, to use star trackers for sure. I want to go back to the sun tracker that you're talking about, because it seems to me if I was looking at the sun, like identifying the biggest, brightest spot in, in the sky in, in space, yeah, I could identify that. I would know I was pointing at that, but I could still rotate around one axis at least. For sure. That's, that is a very, that's a really concern. And that's why you commonly combine multiple of these trackers or multiple of these sensors to, yeah, to sort of work off one another, to check each other in different ways. You know, another issue with the sun tracker is it's not as precise as a star tracker. The sun is still a very, it's a fairly large, bright, hot thing in the sky. So if you're pointing, you know, uh, just a few arc seconds off of, you know, center of the sun, it can be hard to tell. So you commonly, you'll compound them with, with, with other things. You know, another sensor that I actually I failed to mention earlier is a, is a magnetometer, which is, this only works if you're in Earth orbit, because Earth has a magnetic field. It doesn't work around Mars, for instance. But uh, you can basically measure Earth's magnetic field. And if you have a, a general picture of Earth's magnetic field, that can also help, you know, orient you, you know, which way is north, essentially. And so by combining these, you know, combining a magnetometer, you know, a horizon tracker, a sun tracker, star trackers, by combining some subset of those, you can start to get, you know, all three of your, your angular axes and at a pretty high precision. You know, it's, it's interesting. We're, we're sitting here talking about this thing as if it, like, uh, of course you could just do that. But I was thinking about the magnetic field. Like, I'm pretty sure that it's relatively uneven and constantly changing. So it must be a difficult thing to use something like that to figure out where am I with relation to the Earth? Am I pointing at the Earth based on the something that's that's dynamic? Yeah, and that definitely feeds into the different accuracies of these. Like I said, you know, sun trackers less accurate than a, a star tracker. Magnetometers are less accurate than sun trackers typically. We do try to keep a pretty up to date map of Earth's magnetic field. There, are, you know, both satellites and ground based sensors that do precisely that. But you know, as you said, it it does it does change pretty rapidly and not necessarily in the easiest to predict ways. And it's highly dependent on what orbit you're in. So that was another, you know, part of you saying, don't you need to know precisely where you are? And yeah, you know, if you need to have some general idea of where you are when you're, you know, measuring these magnetic fields. So yeah, it's definitely not something that people typically rely on solely. Okay. So it sounds like we, we're using a combination of all these things, but I'm, I'm assuming anyway, there must be some sort of trade-off between weight and, and power consumption. Like a lot of these things sound like they, they require some, some sort of power consumption, some, some, some sort of computing. To, to figure out, you know, am I still looking at the sun, for example? Where are the stars, you know, with regard to where I am? What stars can I see? That kind of thing. So th there must be a few trade-offs here. And I'm assuming that perhaps different combinations of these things are used dependent on the, the height of the orbit or the accuracy needed for the specific satellite that we're talking about? Yes, for sure, right? There's definitely a trade-off, right? So, so things like, a, you know, a horizon tracker or a sun tracker and even like a basic magnetometer you can even make these with analog circuits. You don't even need to necessarily use computers, although all modern versions do. But, you know, so you can do those with, you know, very little bandwidth kind of thing. But when you get up to, you know, a star tracker, you know, it has to be doing trig. It has to be figuring out, you know, what's the most likely set of stars that it's looking at right now. That requires more computational power. And, you know, often it requires, you know, better optics, uh, which means more weight. So there's definitely, you know, these size, mass, cost comparisons that are going on whenever you're designing these kind of things, for sure. And yeah, and you definitely see regimes where, you know, some are more common, you know, horizon trackers, you know, were more common if you're in a lower Earth orbit, right? Because the horizon is going to take up, you know, a bigger part of your field of view. It's much more of a thing to lock onto. 
if you're up in you know geostationary orbit, the Earth is actually a much smaller you know part of your field of view. So maybe it makes sense to use other things. And then also you know another trade-off is if you're in a low Earth orbit, you know, so here we're talking you know in the couple hundred kilometers up to about a thousand or two thousand kilometer range. You know, you're spending a good chunk of your time in shadow. You know, you're going around the night side of Earth, right? Can't use a sun tracker if you can't see the sun. Well, if you're up in, you know, a geostationary orbit, you know, which as compared to the, you know, the couple hundred to, you know, 2000 kilometer range, a geostationary satellites, they're up at about 35,000 kilometer altitudes, you know, way higher. But the amount of time that they spend with, you know, the Earth blocking the sun is, you know, you know, way less. So they could much more easily rely on a sun tracker being available all of the time. Yeah. And you talked about going through the, the shadow of the Earth. So around the dark side, depending on what orbit you're in. If you're in a lower orbit, it made me realize that I guess it's also really important to know where your solar panels are pointing as well. If they're the things that are powering the satellite, so it's one thing to, obviously it's really important to know where the sensor's pointing, but it must be equally as important to know how to rotate your solar panels to, to get the most energy possible. Yes, that is that is actually, you know, perhaps the most important for, for most satellites, right? You know, people who work with maps and with, uh, with geospatial data, you know, Earth observation imagery is, you know, our you know, most direct connections to space. But, you know, the vast majority of satellites, they're not Earth observation satellites, they're doing other things, but pretty much all of them have, uh, have solar panels. And so, you know, pointing their panels at the sun at all given times is how they get power. So you have to do that. You also have to make sure that you're pointing your communications in the right direction. You know, it's pretty wasteful and in terms of power and in terms of mass to have, you know, high-powered omnidirectional transmitters and receivers. So a lot of times, you know, they, they both the transmitters and receivers do need to be pointed to a certain degree at, you know, ground stations, at other satellites. And then finally, of course, you know, you have your Earth observation, which needs to be pointed, you know, at Earth, right? Thankfully, you do have, you know, three axes to work with here. But, you know, sometimes there have to be compromises. And this all definitely has to be thought of when you're designing the satellite and putting these on different orientations. You know, you don't, you don't necessarily want your solar panels on the same side of the satellite as the camera that's supposed to be looking at Earth, right? Because then you sort of, you, you sort of, you know, messed up and you can't point both at the Earth and at the sun all of the time. That makes perfect sense. It's making me realize how computationally expensive this must be to, to figure all this stuff out constantly. And I've just recently heard of this idea of edge computing. So my understanding of edge computing is computing that's done at the source, so at the sensor. And I've heard people talking about this in terms of space platforms as running algorithms on, on data, let, let's say images, for example, deciding if there's too much cloud in the image, let, let's not send it down to Earth. But I guess in reality, we are computing on the edge in space right now. We, we must be in, in order to make some of these calculations and, and make the, the adjustments appropriately. Oh, for sure. Yes, that, that has been, yeah, uh, typically the ADCS, it has its own dedicated you know, computational power Nowadays, because satellites are getting more integrated, sometimes you see some of these things being combined. But historically, that was uh, probably the majority of your computational power was being dedicated towards uh, determining where you are and where you're pointed and making sure that all of that works. And when you go back to the earliest days of satellites, you know, they would go to efforts to try to, to minimize the, the amount of computation there. Because, of course, you know, it was you know, very difficult to put computers in space uh, to make them small enough for that kind of thing. And so you would see things like uh, like spin-stabilized satellites, where this is basically, you have a satellite with a camera pointed at Earth, and then it would be, you put it into a spin about the axis that is looking down at Earth to help keep it stable, help keep it pointed in the same direction. Because if, you know, you, this is just sort of, uh, if you have a high angular momentum, it's 
you're more resistant to being pushed around and being turned in different directions. And so doing something like that, adding some more stability was a way of, you know, cutting down on your need for constantly controlling your, your attitude. As far as I understand anyway, what we've been talking about up until now assumes that something is, is pushing the satellites around, that this orbit isn't stable. That obviously when you're talking at the start, if it's pointing down at Earth, we've got to rotate it. So that's part of the problem. But it sounds to me like there's, there's other forces at work here that we need to adjust and account for. One thing that springs to my mind anyway is, is there any kind of atmospheric drag, perhaps on the, the lower orbiting satellites that is affecting the satellites as well? That means we have to you know, take that into consideration when we're trying to figure out how to keep the satellite pointed at Earth? Yes, you are exactly correct. Yeah, you know, in high school physics or whatever, when you're learning about Keplerian orbits, you know, you're typically thinking two bodies that are in a vacuum and you get these nice, you know, perfect ellipses and parabolas and everything. You know, nothing to, to push you off orbit, nothing to change your direction. But you're right. Uh, in the real world, there's a lot of other factors. And in low Earth orbit in particular, uh, drag is certainly one of them. You know, this is where most Earth observation satellites are in this regime. Uh, it's where the International Space Station is you know, all in this few hundred kilometers up to about 2,000 kilometers. And particularly when you're under 1,000 kilometers, you're feeling some real drag. And you need to use propulsion to periodically, you know, reboost your orbit back to where it's supposed to be. You know, the, the International Space Station has to do that regularly. I think they have to do it almost about once a month or something. So if you don't, you know, your drag will catch up to you. It'll slow you down uh, and pull you out of orbit. And that's exactly actually part of why low Earth orbit satellites, you know, have such relatively short time periods, you know, uh, or lifespans, you know, they're commonly measured in years to, you know, like a decade kind of thing, uh, if, they, if they're not actively using propulsion, as opposed to, you know, go out to, to geostationary and those things, they're going to be up there for a millennium at least. And drag is a, is a huge part of that. And drag also, it affects your orientation, not just your orbit, not just your altitude, you know, as you might imagine, uh, same thing as if you're, you're driving down the road and stick your hand out the window, you know, if you put your palm forward, you know, there's, you're going to have a lot of drag. Wind's going to try to turn your hand. And then if you sort of put the, the edge of your hand in the direction of travel, you know, much lower resistance. Uh, and that's a much more, you know, stable position. The atmosphere does that to satellites. It's going to want to sort of orient them into, into the minimal drag position uh, if it can. And you have to have systems on place to, to resist that kind of thing. So I, I guess it's one thing to detect that these things are happening. It's another thing to have the power to constantly adjust. You talked about the International Space Station needing to be boosted back into orbit or to boost it up again to maintain the orbit. So I'm guessing we're needing some kind of fuel on board. Is the lifespan of a satellite in some regards determined by how much fuel it can carry? And is there any way to refuel a satellite? So yes, to your, to your first question, the fuel is commonly the, the most significant determinant of the lifespan. You know, if nothing breaks, if nothing goes wrong, your satellite, it can keep trucking. But if you run out of fuel, your orbit's going to start drifting. Even if it doesn't deorbit you, you know, it might move out of where you need it to be, right? If you are relying on a really precise orbit for imaging or for communications, get too far off of that, your satellite isn't any good to you anymore. And really the only way to move sort of significantly in, in three dimensions is with, with fuel. Then in terms of refueling, like you said, this is a thing that we are actively working on. It's been done, you know, here and there a couple of times. It's not something that is regularly done except for the International Space Station, which we routinely refuel. But there are, there are companies out there that are actively working on that and actively figuring out, you know, what's a good way of, of getting fuel to satellites in a consistent and easy way to expand, extend their lifespan. It's kind of amazing when you, when you think about it, like all of this is happening, all this while a satellite is sort of slowly falling towards Earth. 
it, it's incredible. It's kind of mind blowing. Yeah, for sure. And drag is not the only thing that affects uh, satellites in this. You know, like we said, you know, when you think of a you know orbital mechanics, you're typically thinking of just two bodies. Obviously, the satellite and Earth are not the only two bodies that are out there. You got other satellites. You got the Moon. You got the Sun. You got factors on Earth that that matter. So that Earth is not a perfect sphere. It doesn't have uniform density. You know, it's fatter around the equator, kind of thing. All of these can mess with your orbit over time, cause it to shift in one way or another and change shape. And, you know, all those things are things that you got to to counteract with some kind of propulsion in terms of, you know, translation or in terms of, you know, some way of turning, changing your attitude in terms of, you know, where you're pointing. So getting back to this idea of orientating satellite in space. So we've got these satellites flying around and they're at, they're at different heights, so different orbits. I am wondering, is there, is there any option here or any possibility of using GNSS satellites to help sort of orientate so lower flying satellites, lower orbiting satellites? Yes and no. Uh, so you can definitely use them for positioning. So, so just so folks know, GNSS, you know, Global Navigation Satellite System, everybody uses them all the time on, on your phones and, and everywhere else. And, you know, there's a few different constellations of them. The U.S. has GPS. You know, Europe has Galileo. China has Baidu. For instance, Russia has GLONASS. They are higher than most satellites, particularly most Earth observation satellites. Like I said, EO satellites tend to be, you know, lower, lower Earth orbit. The GNNS constellations, they tend to be up around 20,000 kilometers, so still lower than the geostationary by and large, but still pretty high up there. So yeah, they are high enough. You can be receiving signals from them in a lot of cases, but there's a few aspects to, to you know, to what extent you can use them. You know, one is, is error. The faster you're moving, the higher error is gonna, you're going to have when using one of those systems, when using a GPS signal. And satellites, they are moving, in fact, quite fast. Another factor is, you know, the higher up you are, as you sort of suggested, the lower accuracy you're going to be. You know, these satellites, they're not broadcasting omnidirectionally with equal strength. They are broadcasting specifically at Earth. So you can sort of imagine a cone going out from each of those satellites to Earth and its size to, you know, to really hit the entire section of Earth that they can see. And when you're on Earth, you're constantly, you know, having overlap of at least, you know, four or more of those satellites because that's how GPS works. You've got to do triangulation between, you know, four or more of these. But as you get to higher altitudes, those cones are all going to be getting narrower and you're increasingly going to be, you know, in gaps between those cones for some portion of the time, which is also going to hurt, you know, your accuracy, your ability to, to get your position. The other thing is GPS predominantly just gets you position. It typically doesn't get you attitude. If you have a single GPS receiver, all it knows is where it is. It doesn't know which way it's pointing necessarily. In order to get your attitude, you need to have two different receivers that are far enough apart from one another that they can you know, actually distinguish each other's signal with, with you know, some kind of accuracy, which I believe has been done before, but it's, it's not very common uh, and it's not really feasible on small satellites at all. But would it be possible to put something on Earth, like broadcast out from Earth versus Earth, a, a signal that would tell the satellites that as long as you can like, hear the signal clearly, you're pointing at Earth? Yes. And so ground stations for satellites actually commonly you know, serve this function to a certain extent. And this is also how NASA does, you know, or part of how NASA does tracking for its various probes and rovers to, to other planets or to the sun. It's, you know, you have what's called uh, the Deep Space Relay Network. And basically by looking at, you know, broadcast from those and receipt from those satellites, they can figure out, you know, okay, where is Earth relative to where I am? How far away is Earth relative to where I am? That kind of thing. This is certainly possible. You know, it gets harder the, the further out you go, as you might imagine. You need, you know, higher powered broadcasters or, or better, you know, receivers on the satellite end. 
And that's part of why when it comes to, you know, deep space operations, you know, across the solar system, maybe even in the future to other solar systems, people are increasingly looking at, you know, other forms of, of navigation, basically, you know, better advances of the star trackers I described. One of the big ways is using pulsars, you know, with these very bright uh, rhythmic stars. And by, you know, if we get a map of those, they're relatively easy to detect. And you could use those to triangulate, you know, where you are, you know, in the galaxy, for instance. Wow, Jack, we, we have come a long way in this conversation and, and I really appreciate your patience. I, I'm sure some of my questions sound, sound really naive, but it, it, I, I find this absolutely fascinating. I hope that you'll bear with me for, for just a few more minutes. Right, so, so you talked about the, the deep space network just before and networking made me think of mesh networking. So there's lots of satellites orbiting the Earth in constellations. I'm assuming that they have a lot of similarities, these satellites. Perhaps they're affected in similar ways as they orbit the the Earth. I, I wonder, is there anything happening within constellations, any kind of mesh networking within constellations saying, hey, I, I'm experiencing this force on me now. When you get here, you should consider adjusting it in some way, or perhaps even using them as reference points within the network, confirming that they're all still within the network? Yes. So that is historically uncommon because, you know, typically, you know, satellites were, you know, one off or just a handful. But you know, is becoming more common over time. You know, one of the things that GPS satellites do, you know, what they're doing, you know, the primary function that you're getting on your phone is they're just broadcasting what time it is. And then, you know, your phone looks at the differences between all of those different broadcast times it received to figure out, you know, where those are. But of course, those satellites, they drift over time. And so one of the other things that they do is they do, in fact, broadcast like, hey, you thought I was going to be here at this time. I'm actually a little bit off that because there was some error. And so they, they periodically broadcast that. And that's, you know, used by, you know, a variety of systems. As you see more and more satellites that are standardized and large, I think you're going to see more and more of that kind of use, particularly as we move to what's called like a free space optical domain, a laser communications domain. You're definitely going to see more of that. This is basically how there is a, a NASA satellite called a GRACE, which measures Earth's gravitational field very precisely. And that's a pair of satellites that you know, use a laser to measure the distance between them constantly. And by looking at how those vary from one to another, they can sort of get a sense of, you know, what's the difference in different mass concentrations, different densities on Earth at different spots to map out, you know, Earth on a three-dimensional way. I think just recently we heard an announcement that an experimental free space optical laser communication system is going to be deployed to the International Space Station. I think as you see those systems become more common, they're also certainly going to be generating a lot of data on the relative positioning of, of two or more satellites. This seems to me like it's another very important use case for, for really deeply understanding the orientation of your satellite. So we need to understand where the sensor's pointing. Let's assume we're talking about an Earth observation satellite. That needs to be pointing at Earth. The solar panels need to be pointing at the sun. And if there is laser communication between a pair of satellites or perhaps a network of satellites, they would really need to understand exactly where they are if they're going to hit each other with those lasers and be able to communicate. For sure. You know, often these, they're very small. We're talking, you know, like on the order of like eight-ish centimeter diameter, these these laser targets. And for two objects that are moving very fast relative to one another. So in addition to detecting where you are and where you're pointing, you have to have a very fine ability to control where you're pointing, which I guess we, we didn't really cover yet. So, you know, we mentioned propulsion. Propulsion is obviously used to move yourself through three dimensions. For larger satellites in particular, you know, it's also used for, for orientation. You can have multiple different rockets or, you know, thrusters at different corners of your, your spacecraft to, to turn yourself. But a lot of satellites, uh, you know, they don't do use that kind of thing for, for attitude control. Instead, they use the main thing that they use are called reaction wheels. 
basically, you know, flywheels, you know, gyroscopes that you can spin up and slow down to change your angular momentum. It's the same kind of concept of if you've ever like spun around in an office chair with your arms out and then like tucked them in, you'll like speed up when you tuck your arms in and you'll slow down when you extend your arms. The same kind of thing by, you know, speeding up or slowing down a wheel on your spacecraft, it'll cause it to rotate in the, the spacecraft as a whole to rotate in the opposite direction. And by having, you know, typically at least three, but, you know, usually four or more of these wheels, you can very pri- uh, precisely orient yourself towards wherever you need to be oriented. Wow. So, so when I hear you talk about this and all of the amazing things that scientists around the world have figured out in order to make you know, satellites possible, in, in order to make Earth observation platforms possible, it, it makes me wonder, is, are we done now? Is that it? Like, is this the mic drop? Have we figured all this stuff out? Is the only problem we're, we're left with now, is it making it sort of better, faster, cheaper? Or what are the next sort of major problems to solve when you think about space and, and satellite platforms? That's a good question. In terms of Earth observation, I do think, as you mentioned, the, the edge computing is going to be a big one, particularly as we move into you know, higher data production levels. When you're talking about constellations like Planet, for instance, you know, that are doing you know, tons of high-resolution imagery of the entire world each day. When you're talking about hyperspectral imagery, most current satellites, you know, Sentinel, uh, Sentinel-2, you know, Landsat, they're so-called multispectral. They have, you know, on the order of, you know, 10 to 20 different bands of light that they're looking at. But there's various satellites that are being worked on right now, and some have even launched, that do hundreds or thousands of bands, so-called hyperspectral imagery. It's a huge amount of data, and it's not necessarily feasible to, to downlink it all currently. And so I do think that that edge computing, figuring out, you know, what are the actually good images to downlink are going to be a big thing. And then, of course, you know, we mentioned free space optical communication, that laser communication. I think that's going to be a big one because its bandwidth is just so much higher than radio communications. So I think that'll really help with communicating from satellite to satellite, you know, help share around some of that, that bandwidth. And then maybe eventually we can get free space optical for your uplink downlink, you know, to the surface of the earth and transmit uh, a lot more data that way. So I, I realize that you are, you, you're doing your PhD in, the field, in, in this field. You're thinking about this stuff all the time. And when you talk about it, you talk about it very sort of neutrally, I guess. Do you still have a sense of wonder when you think about how far we've come and all the things that we've accomplished? When you think about the technology and how it all fits together to you know, give us pictures of the earth? Oh, I definitely have a sense of wonder. I think my sense of wonder, if anything, has only grown. Like the more I learn about uh, satellites, the how complicated they are. Right now, I'm definitely... Over the past two years, as I've gotten really into applications of Earth observation imagery, my wonder there has really grown. This past week, actually, I spent way more time than I should have figuring out how the, the human eye perceives color, because as a mechanical engineer, that was something that I never learned about. But you know, learning more about the different light spectrums uh, that we detect from satellites and you know, how, what the sun emits, its interactions with the atmosphere, I got really curious about, oh, how does the human eye work? Uh, how does it interact with all of these colors that we're seeing? And so sort of following that entire pipeline of, you know, light being emitted from the sun and coming through the atmosphere, bouncing off of things on the earth and making it into our eye. I find that, you know, immensely fascinating. What's your dream job when, you, when you're finished with your PhD? So I'm, I'm very fortunate right now in that, you know, and I'm not the only one, you know, we're living in, I think, a, a golden age of both, you know, geospatial, you know, data work, a golden age of space industry, particularly compared to, you know, where like my parents' generation was, for, for instance. And there are a lot of commercial players out there launching new Earth observation satellites, you know, designing, building their own satellites, and a bunch of others who are figuring out new and innovative ways of processing that data and turning it into to useful 
useful products for people to use for you know agriculture, you know for water, for transportation, for all these things. And I'm really excited to to join one of those sort of startup companies when I graduate. I wish you all the luck in the world with that. I, I really do. I, I have to say, like talking with someone like you that is so knowledgeable about this, it, it's kind of intimidating. I feel like I'm, I'm way out of my depth, but it has been an absolutely fascinating conversation. And, and I really, really, really appreciate your time. So, so there'll probably be some listeners listening to this and thinking, how can I get a hold of this guy? If I, how can they reach out to you if they want to continue the conversation or if they want to ask more questions or share their experience? How can folks connect with you? Yeah, so you can definitely uh, reach out to me on, on Twitter. I'm Jack B. Reed on Twitter. My email, I believe, is also on uh, the MIT Space Enabled website. If you just Google Jack Reed, you know, MIT, I'll probably come up there and I'm happy to, to respond to any of those. And I certainly encourage people. I encourage people to, to learn more about this. Uh, you know, yes, it can seem intimidating. I don't know. For me, it's been actually going the opposite direction and that like I've been learning a lot more about, you know, GIS over the past few years. This podcast has been a great way for me to learn about that. And so all of that was very intimidating for me for a long time in terms of oh, like machine learning and, you know, rasters and all of that kind of data stuff. And yeah, and I've really enjoyed learning about it more, you know, encourage you know, everybody to, to learn, you know, what it's like for, for their upstream. And I still find things intimidating, right? I've taken a look at like the GPS, like error correction documentation, and that is immensely intimidating to me. So there, there's always more to, to learn. Jake, once again, thank you for your time. You're an absolute legend. I really appreciated this conversation. Thank you. And you keep up the good work yourself. It's an excellent podcast. Thanks again to Lightbox for sponsoring this podcast episode. If you are in the US or Canada and want to locate your customers and prospects using addresses, geocoding and property information, or if you're working in real estate, government, telecommunications, insurance, energy or utilities, check out Lightbox. That's L-I-G-H-T-B-O-X-R-E dot com. And there'll be a link in the show notes of this episode to make it easier for you to find. Thanks, Lightbox. Really appreciate your support. Well, I really hope you enjoyed that episode with Jack Reed, a current PhD student at the MIT Media Lab. If you check out the show notes of this episode, you'll see different ways of connecting with Jack on Twitter. And of course, there'll be a link to his profile on the MIT Media Lab website. And I know that he would he would really appreciate it if you took the time to reach out to him. So as promised in the introduction, I just wanted to mention a few resources that you might find interesting. So if you enjoyed this conversation, it might be worth checking out a few of our previous podcast episodes. The first one I'd like to recommend is Navigating the Past, Present and Future of GNSS. You might also enjoy an episode called Satellite-Based Augmentation System, a base station in the sky. Don't let the names of these episodes terrify you. They are... I try to choose guests that will do a great job of sort of breaking things down and explaining things to, to mere mortals like us. But I realize when I, when I read that name out loud, it's like, whew, that, that sounds pretty heavy. It's not. It's, it's a fascinating episode, and, and I think that you'll enjoy it. And last but not least, uh, there's an episode called The Landsat Program. This, this is brilliant. So this, this is a really, really, really interesting episode about uh, how you get a satellite into space. It's Jeff Mask. The Landsat 9 project scientist for, for NASA at the Goddard Space Flight Center it, it does a really, really brilliant job of walking us through all, all, all the different things, all the different details of, of launching a Landsat satellite. It's, it's an enjoyable episode and, and I think you might appreciate it. That's it for me. I'll see you again next week. As always, you're more than welcome to reach out to me. You can find me on social media. I'm most active on Twitter and, and LinkedIn. And, and there'll be links to places where you can connect with me as well in the show notes of this episode if you're interested. We'll talk again next week. Bye.